Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Looking at chapters 17 and 18 tonight. Deuteronomy chapters 17 and 18. So before we get into the teaching, I want to ask God to bless the teaching of his word. And so, Father, we thank you for being with us here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you continue to do in our lives and ask, Father, for your grace to be with us as we look into your word. And we look at some of the laws that were given to the children of Israel. And some of this, especially at the end of chapter 18, Lord, applicable to the church as it becomes very messianic in its topic. And so as we look at a very strong messianic prophecy tonight, connecting us to Jesus amongst the laws that were given to the children of Israel and the warnings given to the children of Israel, warnings that we ourselves as Christians should heed to many of these things. So we ask Be with us as we look into your word this night. In the name of Jesus, amen. So one of the laws that was given to the kings of Israel becomes really a, usually I pick one or two key verses in the chapter, but I got three verses that are key. We'll get to this at the end of Deuteronomy 17, but I give you a little preview here. Talking about the king who sits on the throne. So 18 through 20, very key. It shall also be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the book from the one before the priest, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to be careful to observe all the words of this law and his statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that they may not turn to the left or turn aside to the commandments to the right or to the left, that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and the children of in the midst of Israel. And so, Here we have um, very key for the kings of Israel as we get into, uh, we're not there yet, but we will eventually get over to somewhere in the middle of uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll start learning about Israel requesting a king. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, 2 Samuel, um, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. We learn about all the kings of Israel And we find and we'll discover that many of them did not do this, what God required of them, to take a copy of the 
the law, the book, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that was before the priests and the Levites there at the tabernacle or the temple to make a copy for himself and to read from that copy all the days of his life. And so we find that one of the first duties of the king was to handwrite a copy of the Bible and to read from it all the days of his life. So that sets us up for Deuteronomy chapter 17. It mostly deals with having just judges and fair judgments in the land of Israel. And as a Judeo-Christian nation, a lot of our principles that has formed our government came from portions of Scripture like found in this chapter. What I like most about this chapter is what their kings were supposed to do at the beginning of their ranks. So chapter 17 connects with the last point of chapter 16, last week's teaching, verses 18 through 22, where Moses reminded them that they were to appoint judges and officers in all their gates. Chapter 16, verse 18. In other words, they were to appoint judges and officers in every city of every tribe, These judges and officers were not to pervert justice. They were not to show partiality. They were not to take bribes. And this would help to ensure that the children of Israel would strive to live justly and inherit all the land of promise. The last warning of chapter 16 was that Israel was not to plant or set up any wooden images or sacred pillars, which the Lord your God hates, 16, uh, 22. So there was to be no false judgment, no false worship in the land of Israel. Well, that brings us right into chapter 17. And please remember that um, the chapters and verses have been added to the original uh, writings hear of Moses, and so Moses didn't have a, a verse, uh, chapter 16, 22, and then chapter 17, verse 1. So the flow should continue on in chapter 17. In verse 1, it says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep that has any blemish or defect, that for that is an abomination to the Lord. So False worship was not merely worshiping other gods, but also worshiping Yahweh in unprescribed manner. And that would be by offering a bull or a sheep or a goat that had a blemish or a defect. God said, that is an abomination to me. And so we get this listed out to us. And, you know, we just know when an animal doesn't look right, if they're sick, but Leviticus 22 21 through 25, I summed up some of the descriptions that Moses gave them of an animal having a blemish or a defect. It could include being blind, broken, maimed, having ulcers, eschema, uh, scabs, long or short limbs, as well as being bruised, crushed, torn, or cut. And so offering such offerings would not be accepted by God. They could offer it, but God was not going to accept it. Deuteronomy 15, 21. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, 
You shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. This was an abomination. It was abhorrent. It was detestable to the Lord. And so it speaks about something, that word for abhorrent speaks about something that could be evil, but also um, inconsistent with its own nature. There was something wrong with the animal. God said, do not offer it to me. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament were to remain pure, as pure as possible, because they would have their ultimate fulfillment in the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, they were to be without blemish, teaching us that as Jesus would be without spot and would be without blemish when he offered his life at all times, but when he went to the cross, Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 9, that Jesus was offered on the cross as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then speaking of followers of Jesus, 2 Peter 3.14, he Peter reminds us that we are to be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blemish or blameless. And in a similar way, Paul would say that Jesus would present her, speaking of the church, present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5, 27. And so Jesus was, is that acceptable sacrifice unto God who was without spot or blemish, so much so that John the Baptist introduced him to the world in John 1, 20. Nine, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we as his church are also, according to Paul, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. But that's the work of the Lord, that Jesus will present his church to himself, a glorious church, that is part of the work of the Lord. So as far as humanly possible, when they presented an offering to the Lord, a bull or a sheep, it was not to have any blemish, any defect. That was an abomination to the Lord. That Hebrew word again for abomination uh, would be something abhorrent, something detestable uh, to the Lord. Second, we find in this chapter in verses 2 through 7 that no man, no woman was to serve or worship other gods. And he says in verses 2 through 7, And if there is found among you within any of your gates, and that simply means any city in the nation of Israel, if there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or the moon, or have any host of heaven which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true, and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing 
and shall stone to death the man or woman with stones. Whoever is worthy of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, but you shall not but he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. In verse seven, the hands of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil person from among you. So Israel, coming into the promised land, they were to be a theocracy. They were to be a nation governed by God. And God said, you cannot worship other gods. And we recently learned from Sunday in the Gospel of John from a few Sundays ago, of the religious rulers' threat to excommunicate anyone who believed in Jesus. And they did this to a man who was born blind. In John 9:22, it says the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he is the Christ, that they would be put out of the synagogue. And so that was the agreement. Anyone that agreed together that and confessed that Jesus was the Christ, they were to be put out, they were to be excommunicated from the community. And in verse 34 of John 9, it tells us of the formerly blind man, they said to him, you are completely born in sins and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. Well, that was as close as they would get in that time to stoning someone for worshiping another god. They cast them out. So Israel didn't always follow through with the death penalty here, but they had other means by which uh, they could punish individuals. This was a very serious matter. Excommunication to the Jews would mean loss of livelihood and loss of the ability to worship at the tabernacle or at the temple. And of course, stoning someone would mean the loss of your life. So a transgression against God's covenant after going after and serving other gods could cost them their lives, but only, in verse 7, at the hands of two or three witnesses. So first, this was not a lynching. So don't think of the old Wild West cowboy movies where they go lynch someone without trial. There had to be a proper trial before judges and officers of the city. And second, one witness wasn't sufficient for a death penalty to be carried out, but on the mouths of two or three witnesses, every matter is decided. And so... Also, number three, I only had two in my notes, but there is a number three. So first of all, it wasn't a lynching. They had to go before proper judges and officers. Number two, one witness wasn't sufficient. Two or three witnesses were necessary for capital offense. And number three, those witnesses were the first ones to cast the stones. And then the rest of the people would also cast the stones after them. So this kind of connects us with a few weeks ago when John 8, 7, when the woman who was caught in adultery with Jesus saying, John 8, 7, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The casting 
of the first stone was connected to the condemnation of a sinner by the accuser who was also by right of the law supposed to be or partake in the execution, become a part of the execution of that individual. So Jesus challenged them, I believe, on this very portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 7, whoever is worthy of death must be put to death on the mouth of two or three witnesses, and the hands of the witnesses shall be first against them, and then the hands of the rest of the people. So the witnesses casting the first stone helped to ensure that they were telling the truth. There are a lot of people who like to accuse But then sometimes they don't even, today, just modern events, they won't even show up to court. They just get you entangled in some kind of legal battle that make a mess out of your life because they don't like something that you had done. But they won't even testify. And then there's another thing. One of the commentators believed that by them casting the first stone and putting someone to death, that if they were caught to being a lie, then they too would be committing a capital offense of murdering someone, and then they could be put to death. So it made it very serious for the children of Israel to um, go through something like this in the nation. But the whole purpose was to put away an evil person from among you. God was looking for a pure people a nation of Israel that was to be unlike all the other nations of the world. And to the priests, Levites, and judges in verses 8 through 13, we continue Deuteronomy 17. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of blood guiltiness, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judges, or to the judge, sorry. Uh, That's singular there, and I think that's significant. It is priest, plural. It is Levites, plural. But to the judge, singular, there in those days, And inquire of them, and they shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all they order, according to the sentence of the law which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounced upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil person from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. So basically we have here a a case that's too difficult. They had their supreme type court which was either at the tabernacle or the temple uh, depending on what era they were dealing with when they first came into the promised land it was the tabernacle throughout the entire period of the judges and 
Samuel's day and King Saul's day and actually in King David's day. It was always the tabernacle. It wasn't until Solomon, until the temple was built. But that's what's referred to here when they should go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So the tabernacle or temple to come to the priests, come to the Levites, come to the judge. So local government was to be handled at every city's main gate. It's where business was conducted and where judgments were made by the elder. But if a case proved too difficult, and he gave a, a few different scenarios here, uh, it could be the degrees of blood guiltiness uh, between one judgment or another, uh, an issue of punishment or matters of controversy. If it was something that couldn't be decided in a hometown by the uh, judges and officers of that hometown, then they were to bring it before the Lord. Did you notice that? That twice he said he stood before the judge, verse 9 and verse 12. But the second time, Moses didn't mention the priests, didn't mention the Levites, but mentioned the Lord your God. He stands to minister there before the Lord your God. The priest is mentioned. He's ministering before the Lord. So God is pulled into this as well. They would bring it to what would be their Supreme Court. And they would pronounce a judgment. They pronounce a judgment. Then that judgment was to stand. So the judge may be looking forward to the period of Joshua. Moses technically was the judge in his lifetime. And this follows through with um, Moses and the 70 elders. He said to them, he divided up the responsibility of the judgment of the people. And he said, if there is a case too difficult for you, then bring it to me and I will take it to the Lord. And so that's the sense of the judge. Joshua became one of those judges. Uh, in the book of Judges, we find not only Joshua, Judges, First Samuel, we had men and sometimes women who judged over the people of Israel for a season. In Judges 2, 16 through 19, it gives us a summary of the judges. It says, Never the Lord... Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlots with other gods. They bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And the Lord raised up judges for them. The Lord was with the judge, delivered them out of the hand of the enemy all the days of the life of the judge for the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them judges 2:19 and it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers and by following after other gods they served them they bowed down to them they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways so the decision of the supreme court uh, the priest that was stood before the Lord, the judge over the nation at that time, that eventually would expand to the kings as well, uh, it was to be final. If their judgment was not to obey 
uh, be obeyed by the people, uh, someone, an individual, that person was to be put to death. And this would result in two outcomes. First, they would put away the evil person from their land. And second, the people would hear in fear and not act in a similar way, not act presumptuously. And it reminded me, each time I read that today, we have our own Supreme Court who last year in June decided that abortion was to be turned back over to the states. And immediately we had people saying, we're not obeying that. And we had this state that we're in and several other states saying we're going to become a refuge for those who want to have abortions. So the decision of our Supreme Court, and we have it in many other ways as well, it's like we're not obeying. And we have in our land people who do not fear and do act presumptuously because they are not obedient to the laws that the Lord has given our country to be governed by. But this, that is on a secular level to what we're talking about is also um, not just social, but religious for the children of Israel. So of the future kings, it begins in verses 14 through 17. And the rest of the chapter talks about the future kings, but it begins Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. It says, When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it, dwelling in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own brethren. You shall not set a king over you uh, one from among your own brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord your God has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. As the last few verses remind you of any king in Israel, of all the things he was not to do and he did do. Yeah, you got it, King Solomon. But it was after the period of the judges that consisted of about uh, somewhere around three or 400 years, it came the period of the kings. The first kings were under a united kingdom of Israel and the first kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. Uh, Saul did have one son that ruled for a couple of years, but I didn't even put him on the list. Um, Saul, David, and Solomon lasting their reign for 120 years. Then came the divided kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten northern tribes, and they did not follow the Davidic line. None of their kings were descendant of David, and they lasted around 209 years until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians captured them and took them into captivity. And the southern kingdom, all these kings were sons of David. They followed the Davidic line, and their kingdom lasted about 345 years until five 
83 BC, and I'm trying to pull these numbers out of my head. Come on, John, you know these things. You got it memorized, right? But I did write it down that I don't have to memorize these things. And I know where it's at in my Bible. That's why it's good to hold on to an old Bible. Those notes that you put in there, what did I say? What year? Let me find it. I might get in trouble. I may not find it. Horrible, horrible. I'll come back to it. <laughs> I'm trying to find my Bible notes. My grandson, Josiah, looks at these notes. And they're so small. I used to see so well when I was 32 years old. And now I just do not see as well as I used to. I thought it was right here, but I guess I failed. Five, 38 or 83, that's my guess, but now it's just a guess because I don't see it in my notes. Sorry about that. All right, that would be the fall of Israel or Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And I could probably find it in other areas too, but I'm not going to search through the Bible. It would be in the Chronicles and in the Kings, and you guys can Google it, but I don't have time for that. So after the period of the judges, then came the period of the kings. Israel's request for the king came toward the end of Solomon's or Samuel's life. Sorry, Samuel's life. While in 1 Samuel 7:15, it tells us as Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, as he was getting older, he set up two of his king, two of his sons, his two sons, to judge over Israel, and they were wicked boys. And the people requested a king to rule over them. Because of this, the request displeased Samuel when the people came to him in 1 Samuel 8, 6, saying, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 8, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And so the request for the king was a rejection of God's theocracy over them. But here in Deuteronomy 17, we learn that God knew they were going to come to this one day. And so when they requested a king, the rules for Israel. First, Yahweh was to choose the king. Second, their king were to be of Israeli descent. This point alone would disqualify the Herodian line that ruled before, during, and after Jesus' life because they were all Edomites. So when you hear about Herod the Great or Herod Agrippa, these were Edomites. They went against this very passage. They were set up puppet kings by Rome over the nation of Israel. But for the Orthodox Jew they would have never condoned the ruling over them. So that was the rules for Israel. God was to choose their king. Their king was to be of Israeli descent, one of their brothers. The rules for the king, first, they could not multiply horses for themselves, nor could they cause people to go to Egypt to get horses for the king. Solomon did both of these. Second, they were not to multiply wives for themselves, as the wives might turn the king's heart away from Yahweh. Solomon did this very thing. Third, they were not to multiply. It, it said uh, too much 
greatly multiply silver or gold. So it's not that they were not to have silver or gold, but Solomon greatly multiplied silver and gold. He broke all three of these requirements. As we read in 1 Kings 10, 26 and 27, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. In 1 Kings 11, 1 through, 4, 1 through 3, King Solomon loved many foreign women, the daughters of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. He had 700 wives, or 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and the wives turned his heart, turned away his heart. So exactly what God said would happen, happened to Solomon. The king's first and daily duty, his first duty was to write a copy of the law in the first five books, the Pentateuch. Second duty would be to read it all the days of his life, 18 through 20. And it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law in the book from the one before the priests and the Levites, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to be careful to observe all the words of the law and all these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up from his brother, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So this was to be their first and daily duty. Write a copy, handwriting, uh, written copy of the Bible. I was thinking uh, what it would be like to get the, if you could read it, the Gutenberg Bible, the first uh, printed Bible, and to have that and to even look at it. They were to take the copy that was before the priest, so the copy that was kept at the temple or the tabernacle, that would have great significance in itself. It would be like uh, the complete scroll of Isaiah that's on display in the museum in Jerusalem that was found in the uh, among the articles of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And to have that and to work from it and to copy from it And so the original copy, it was to be a sacred and special thing for the king to do, just to write a copy for himself, but then to read it all the days of his life. Just to have a Bible, it doesn't do a lot of people in many of our homes. There are a lot of Bibles sitting around in homes that are never read. I have a number of Bibles in my homes that are in my house. I only have one home, but number of Bibles through the years that I've Gotten. I don't read. Uh, some of them I've never read. Sometimes I'm given Bibles. Sometimes um, they've been given to me or I've used them for a period until I wear them out and they just kind of go on the shelf. But always reading the Word of God, that's an important thing. Can you imagine what our nation might be like if our president would hold to this tradition? Get a copy of the Word of God and read it all the days of his and maybe someday her life. 
Moses gave them four reasons why they should read the word of God. Number one, that they may learn to fear the Lord his God. In Psalm 111.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Number two, that they may learn to be careful to observe all the words of the laws and the statutes. That they would observe the things that were written in the word of the Lord. Number three, that they would not turn aside from the commandment to the left hand or to the right. And number four, that he may prolong his days and his children in the midst of Israel. Proverbs 10:27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. So the fourth reason reminds us that our own faithfulness to the Lord can be passed on to that next generation. It not only benefits us, but it benefits our family and our friends, those lives whom we touch. So chapter 18. This one, uh, 22 verses. Chapter 18 teaches about the Levites and the provision that God gave to them throughout the nation of Israel. Also teaches about the coming prophet that pointed ultimately to Jesus. And so uh, key verses. Well, I'm going to change my mind on the key verses that I have here. So to me in Deuteronomy 18, I had put down 6 and 7. But if I was to think about Deuteronomy chapter 18, the two verses that I'd want you to memorize would be verses 15 and 18. 15 says, And the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. In 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So these are messianic prophecies concerning the prophet in the Gospels. They would ask Jesus, they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? John said no, but Jesus was the prophet. So we find the inheritance of the priests and the Levites in verses 1 and 2. The priests, the Levites, and all the tribe of Levi shall have no part or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offering of the Lord made by fire and his portion. There they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance as he said to them. So the tribe of Levi, from which came the priestly line, were not to receive any physical inheritance, no land in the promised land, because God had become their inheritance. In number 1820, Numbers 1820, the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. So by keeping the Levites as the Lord's inheritance, Yahweh was able to spread the Levites throughout all Israel. The priests, they lived in all the land of Israel, not having a, a place of their own. They were scattered throughout the land of Israel, but this also uh, allowed the people to have 
the presence of the Levites and the priests in their midst to remind them of the things of God. So the priests do what was due him, three through five, and it shall be the priests do from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, whether it's a bull or a sheep, they shall give it to the priest, the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the first of the fleece of your sheep, you shall give to him, for the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So God gave Aaron and his sons charge over the heave offerings and the wave offerings that included the best of the oil, the best of the new wine, the grain. They also were able to eat a portion of the sacrificial offerings of whether bull, sheep, or goats. God gave these to them as part of their payment, their inheritance. They didn't receive any property, any land, but God gave them a portion of the tithe that came to the temple that they could provide for themselves and for their families. And this gift from the Lord to the priests and their sons and daughters, they were sealed, according to Numbers 18, 19, by the covenant of salt. And it really, that covenant of salt is only mentioned, um, not mentioned a lot in Scripture, but when they were rebuilding the temple after the Babylonian captivity, the king said that they were to receive Salt without measure. So this is a big deal. The covenant of salt It spoke of an unbreakable and lasting covenant with God. Deuteronomy 10, 8 and 9 says, At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion, no inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God has promised him. So through the years, I learned, I have been taught growing up in church through the years that the reason the Levites were separated unto the Lord was because they stood at the rebellion of the golden calf with Moses. Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi stood up. 3,000 of their brethren were executed, not the Levites, but of the Israel. That day, Exodus 32, 26 through 29. However, with further study of the word of God, that's what I was always taught. That's why God set them apart. God had already chosen the Arianic line as the priesthood. Exodus 28, 1 through 4. God had already made that choice. So what might better fit of why was Jacob's prophecy over his sons, that of Simon and Levi, where in Genesis 39 and 7, he said, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And we discover that Simon's tribe would be absorbed in Judah because they were so small and the Levites were scattered throughout all the land. So that might better fit of why God chose the tribe of Levite. So the Levites do. So these are not the priests, but they're of the tribe of Levite, six through eight. So if a Levite comes 
from any of your gates, from where he dwells among all Israel, and comes with all the desire in his mind to the place which the Lord chooses, to the tabernacle or temple, then he may serve in the name of the Lord his God, as all his brothers, the Levites, do, who stand there before the Lord. They may have equal portions to eat, besides what they what comes from the sale of his inheritance. So this is specifically speaking about a Levite who felt called by God to go and serve at the tabernacle or temple. So no doubt uh, there are not too many. uh, I was trying to think of my own family. I didn't have any brothers. I I have three sisters, but um, my dad had brothers. And to my knowledge, and my knowledge is probably correct in this, of his brothers, there was only one who, my dad, who surrendered his heart to serve the Lord in ministry. And so in that sense, he felt the call of God upon his heart for a special ministry that God would give to him, my dad, the Levites. And he strived to minister to the Lord to the best of his ability. I felt that same call. The Levites might have one, though there are many Levites. Many of them would just come and do the duty that they had to do because that was their responsibility, but they may not necessarily felt a special call from the Lord to come and serve in the presence of the Lord at the temple or tabernacle. All would have to do it. They all would have to fulfill their time. But to me, this speaks about someone who felt an additional call upon their life. And it could be that though they would never to be priest, they could serve at the tabernacle or temple in some deeper way. In verse 8, it's difficult for the interpreters of it because he shall sell the portion shall have equal portions to eat besides what comes from the sale of his inheritance. Well, he he wasn't supposed to own land, so he didn't have an inheritance in that sense. So it makes it a little difficult to understand there. But you know what it reminded me of? One of the brothers in the New Testament church in the book of Acts, his name is Barnabas. He was a Levite, and the Word of God tells us in Acts 4, 36 through 37, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was a Levite, wasn't supposed to own land, according to the law. He had land, but he ended up having that desire, some deeper service to the Lord, He sold the land, he gave it to the apostles, and he went on to be one of the great missionaries of the early church. A Levite coming to the temple or tabernacle with all the desire of his mind spoke to me about his great love and devotion to the Lord. And in the same way, we can serve the Lord. As in Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these. Hold, hang on these. Hang all the law and the prophets. These two commandments. 
all the law and the prophets. What two commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So 9 through 14, dealing with the occult. So it kind of shifts gears for a moment before we get to the good stuff in verse 15. 9 through 14. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer, or interprets omens or sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or mediums or spiritualists, one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. The same word being used over and over again. It's detestable to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out of the land from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So the occult, they were to have nothing to do with it. So earlier in chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, we learned that worshiping another god other than Yahweh was worthy of death, but they could not be put to death except by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So we learned that in chapter 17. Here they're not even talking about death. They're talking about things they were not to do. They were not to follow the worship of the pagans. You know, when I began reading that, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Now, many years ago, this is what came to my mind as I read those words, and I read these earlier. I prepared the message. It didn't come to my mind then. But as I just read them, I thought of a time when Pastor Chuck Smith, and we were living out in California in the 90s, and uh, he was speaking from the pulpit, and he said something that had to do with sexual depravity, and he gave it a title, a name that I'd never heard before. And my first thought was, what in the world is he talking about? I'm going to have to look that up. My second thought I don't want to look that up. I don't want to know what he's talking about. We'll just let that one, I'll stay ignorant on that subject. And so I never looked it up. Through the years, I learned what he was talking about. But that was not because I was looking for it. It found me in this world of information. It was something that found me and to this day, I wish I still did not know, but I do. So for a while, my mind was clean on that subject, and that was nice. So that is the sense that this reminded me of. You should not learn to follow abominations of those nations. Don't even go after them. I wonder what it's like to mess with a Ouija ball, to have tarot cards, to all these things that people are doing. Just stay away from such things. For them, those who made their sons and daughters pass through the fire, speaking of child sacrifice, they had unwanted babies. This is their method of getting rid of the babies. Much like today in our country, 
We have unwanted babies. That method is called abortion today. The practice of witchcraft, soothsaying, sorcery, uh, all part of the occults. Something that King Saul kicked out of the land, but then after the Lord wouldn't speak to him any longer, he sought out a medium and called up the dead to find out what would happen to his life during his last battle. He had this witch of Endor. This is all found in 2 Samuel 28, chapter 8. But let me tell you this. I grew up watching a TV show called Bewitched, and Bewitch's mom was Endora. And here in 1 Samuel 28, we find that the witch he went to, the medium he went to, was from Endor. I don't think this, that's just not a coincidence. They knew what they were doing when they named Samantha's mother, Endora. Anyways, he ended up breaking his own laws that he had set into place to conjure up Samuel to tell him what would come of his life. They were not to do this. It was detestable, abhorrent to the Lord. And it was repeated twice in verse 12. Uh, This is an abomination. This is an abomination. And I think that was repeated twice in one verse to enforce the seriousness of this. In the church today, we are told in Galatians 5, 19 through 22, that we're to stay away from the work of the flesh, from adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbirth and wrath. That's 10. Then he goes on, 11. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, rivalries, and the like. He got up to 17, and he said, that's enough. Just anything else like that. Stay away from it. Don't practice such things. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So the prophet, again, Deuteronomy 18:15, memorize this one, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Verse 16, according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the land of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. So he's dropping back, reminding them that when they stood before the mountain of the Lord, when God was preparing to give them the commandments of God, he hadn't given the Ten Commandments yet, he gathered the nation of Israel to the mountain of the Lord. They didn't climb up on the mountain, but when they saw the lightnings, the thunderings, the smoldering, they heard the voice, the trumpets, they said, Moses, you go up. You hear for us, you come back, you tell us, and we will listen to you. So Moses here is saying, God is going to have another prophet like me, and he will hear from me, just like Moses did for Israel, the Messiah is to do for the nation of Israel 
and for those outside the nation of Israel who believe in his name. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So that's what God did with Moses. Moses was instructed by God and then Moses in turn gave God's instruction to the people. Messiah instructed by God the Father and he gave the Father's word to the people. Verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. So if you don't believe the prophet, the Messiah, God's judgment will come upon you. So of the many messianic prophecies that point to Jesus, of these as found in this section of scripture, there's four basic things that we can draw from this. The first, Jesus was like Moses in that he communicated directly to the Father. Second, Jesus came from among the brethren of Israel. Jesus was of the lineage of David, the son of Abraham. Third, God put his words in Jesus' mouth. John Gospel, John's Gospel 12, 49 through 50, Jesus said, I have not spoken my own authority, but my Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. And fourth, Jesus spoke all that his Father commanded him. John 8, 28, he said, And when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. A couple of Sundays ago, we, again, we learning of the formerly blind man. He came to a point when they asked him, who do you say that Jesus is? Eventually he said, well, I guess he's a prophet. Now a prophet would connect a person to being a man of God or a woman of God. But the prophet connects to this Mosaic prophecy about the Messiah. So if you're reading the Bible and you see a prophet versus the prophet, when it talks about the prophet, they're talking about this Messianic prophecy. He closes out with a test for the prophets. In verses 20 through 22, a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die... And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word of the Lord has not spoken? How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has not, the prophet has spoken presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So the test of a prophet, he speaks, thus says the Lord. And then whatever he said, had to come to pass. If he said, thus says the Lord, and it didn't come to pass, then it wasn't of the Lord. So years ago, another random thought that just dropped in my head. Back in 1986, I think, our band was playing at a festival called Cornerstone, and there was a band there called One Bad Pig. And uh, they were mm, a thrash band. That would be a nice way to describe them. I think uh, the lead singer had like a mohawk spike that was like 12 inches over the top of his skull. Um, but 
we had learned we were one of the bands that was playing one of the side stages there. And uh, before One Bad Pig got to Cornerstone Festival, the bass guitar, the bass player's guitar got stolen from a gig that they were doing somewhere else. And so he didn't have a guitar. Now, there was a lot of bands there, but I let them use my bass. Nobody else stepped forward. I kind of regretted it once I saw him playing and how he played, especially when they walked out with a guitar holding it up over their head. They had a hollowed-out flash pot in it, and so the very first thing they did was blow up a guitar. I thought, oh, my bass, my bass, my only one. <laughs> it's all I got, Lord. But the reason I say this Someone told me because of my great act of kindness, God was going to give me another bass guitar. I'm still waiting. <laughs> I don't actually think that was a thus says the Lord. That was just a nice thing that someone said to me. Um, because, yeah, that didn't happen. So sometimes people might say thus says the Lord. So what do we do? We wait and we see. If it comes to pass, then yeah, that must have been the Lord. That was the Lord. If it doesn't come to pass, I can say of that very nice person, that was just you talking. That wasn't the Lord. Unless somebody wants to buy me a new base, and then we could tie it back. To <laughs> no, I don't want to twist it. <laughs> it's been too long. That was too long ago. Well, it wasn't time stamped, was it? I don't know. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets. They come in chief, sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Once again, watch the life and you'll know. And in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are to test the spirits, whether it's of God or not. A Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. He tested it. He said to Jesus in John 3, 2, We know that you are a teacher come from God, because no man can do the things that you do unless God is with him. So some people could see it in Jesus, in Jesus' day. My question to you, have you confessed Jesus as the Savior and Lord of your life? Father, we pray that we have made that confession for those who may be listening on the radio at this hour, watching through our video feed, or maybe they hear this message at a later time. I pray, Lord, that if they have not confessed the name of Jesus, that they would do so today, this very hour. No matter when they might hear this message, Lord, that they would give their hearts to you, their hearts to you. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our lives and pray that you would continue to work in each of our lives. Draw us closer to you. Help us to live for you and for your glory and for our good. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I pray that God blesses you, that he keeps you, that his face always shines upon you and gives you peace. God bless.